This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Everybody, 2016 is over. Our long national nightmare is over until we find out how 2017 is going to be bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And this week we're going to be talking about Angel by a, a writer named Elizabeth Taylor, not the actress. It's important to note. And not the vampire angel <laughs> oh true yes yes i thought we were going to talk about new, new year's resolutions but do you have any david boreanaz jokes you need to get out of the way right now i don't have any david boreanaz jokes he has been on bones for a really long time and that's less of a joke than it is an observation but i have always entertained the possibility that angel quit because because in the show angel he was like a, a supernatural crime solver in he was LA. vampire batman Right, he's Vampire Batman, and which is funny because bats and vampires. Get it? But I always thought that his character on Bones was just like Angel had gone to DC and was trying to start a new life. That seems reasonable. And he's been doing that for like 11 seasons. Bones has been on for so <laughs> long. My New Year's resolution is to get the show Bones off the air by hook or by I, crook. I think it is. I think there's one more year. It's going for that one more can't year. be true. No, one more year. That can, can you? I season twelve bones. I don't think that that could possibly be true. Bones series finale. Okay, when was it? Uh, season eleven finale. Not the season uh, one. There is, there is one more. There is okay. Season twelve is coming up, and it's the last one. What? Hmm. Oh no. Mm-hmm. My New Year's resolution is, is to get really into the show. Get bones. really into the show Bones before it ends. <laughs> I've only got so much time. Andrew, did Daddy, you know you gotta get up ooh, on the Zeitgeist, man? I do. It's the most popular show on TV. Did you know that uh Angel's dad uh either still is or used to be a newscaster here in Philadelphia? Are we talking about David Boreanaz or are we talking about Someone else. Yes, I'm talking about an all-powerful vampire that spawned Angel. Yes, I'm talking about his dad, David Boreanaz's dad, Mister Boreanaz. I think so. He was a he's a newscaster. What was what was his deal? I, he was just on like the local ABC affiliate for a long time. I don't oh. think his name was Mister Boreanaz. So I, that's how that's how old David got bit by the bug. His name was Dave Roberts, and he saw his dad. He saw his dad doing the weather report, and he was like, I would like to do that, except it should be about vampires or <laughs> bone crimes. Yeah, or about bone crimes. Oh, bone crimes. no. News at 11. 
let's talk about books, I guess. Let's talk about a book. Let's so for all the people who are joining, for all the people who out there whose New Year's resolution was to listen to a cool book podcast, what we do every week is one of us reads a book that we've never ever read before. And then we talk about it with the other person. And we also cover autobiographical stuff about the authors and whatever else that we talk about. Clearly. Mm-hmm. The show Bones, obviously, is a fixture. It's it's lodged itself into your life in a way that I didn't know was possible. Welcome to No Bones About It, the internet's <laughs> premier Bones podcast. God. Okay. Okay, okay. It's worth noting that sometimes we do books that are recommended to us by our illustrious Patreon donors. Uh, this one was recommended to us by Keisha. Andrew, I don't know much about the Elizabeth Taylor that we're not going to talk about today, so I'm Elizabeth not going to Taylor. Wait, which okay? So Elizabeth Taylor, she was born in 1932, died in 2011. I don't. She was a British American star of stage and screen, uh-huh. known for roles in movies like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and Cleopatra. Is that the Elizabeth Taylor that you meant? That because I've got pages on her. That's not helpful. Well, that's really unfortunate. So we're going to let's pretend that she wrote this book mm-hmm. and see how that goes. No way, man. Psych. I did all the research. That's on a the great right show, Elizabeth too. Taylor. You want to do a podcast about psych? Is that still yeah, on the let's, air? What can we call that? We call it like psych up, psych out, psychedelic. Call, oh, we should call psych it psych fan cast. Yeah, yeah, psychedelic's good. All right. So Elizabeth Taylor, the novelist, was born Betty Coles in 1912. She died in 1975. She's an English novelist and short story writer. And uh, she attended the Abbey School in Reading, which is where she was born. Do you know why um, that's important, the, Andrew? It was the same one. It was a school attended by Jane Austen, which she's received some comparisons to probably not in the least because she attended that same school. Yeah. Uh, But she was born in Reading and she's the daughter of an insurance inspector and she married uh, the owner of a confectionery company. So I I wonder what confections his company made, but I didn't do any research. (laughs) (laughs) I like wondered, but I didn't wonder so much that I looked it up. Well, and I don't know when she got married, but you're, you know, she was born 1912. She's probably on her first novels after she got married in mm-hmm. that was in 1945. It was at Mrs. Lippincoat's. So I bet there it was like wartime confections or well, maybe he went off to fight in the war and they had to take a break from confections. I'm not sure. Or maybe they had to make confections out of like sawdust and <laughs> And use tires. And use tires because there is a war on. Uh, <laughs> Did you know that's how that's uh, when they developed the original recipe for bit of honeys? Shut <laughs> up. The war, they made them out of tires. Actually, used tires would probably be really useful during the war, so they probably wouldn't mm-hmm. eat them. Well... They do all kinds of stuff. They do. Um, she was briefly a member of the British Communist Party, and uh, the, thereafter she joined the more mainstream Labour Party that still exists today to some small extent. <laughs> to whatever extent it does, yes. Brexit. <laughs> um, she actually, she was, her involvement with the Communist Party was sort of tied up with this long-running extramarital affair that she was having with this guy named Ray Russell. Correct. Um, So she had this affair with him throughout World War II, and there are a lot of letters between them 
that uh, there was there was a biography that was published about her. Two thousand nine, yeah, yeah. Nicola Bowman in two thousand nine, and um, and those letters really they they give a lot of insight into her like writing process and into some of the themes and stuff that she would write about. So she she wrote a lot about uh, middle class and upper middle class English life, and there is a particular focus, I think, on the sort of I think what what we would think of as like mundanities. Just as sure. like, people people living out their lives and the you know occasionally like the the quiet desperation that those people <laughs> would would run into as they were living those lives mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like 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 there were a lot of th- there was one particular book it was a, it, I remember it was published in 1972 I forget the the name of it but there's it's a it's a book where the main character and her husband like adopt. Oh yeah. Non-white. Yeah, like non-white kids. And it gives them a lot more to talk about because they can talk about their kids, but then she realizes like she's really scared for those kids to leave because what else does she and her husband have to talk about? So it's like it's a, it's that kind of stuff. Yeah. She's not afraid to do like a little bit of satire that underneath that is like a lot of uncomfortable truths about mm-hmm. people. <laughs> yeah. Um about that about that uh, biography, it was called The Other Elizabeth Taylor. I don't know if you knew that, Andrew. I, I did funny. know that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of those letters, some folks had presumed that they were burned, as a lot of her correspondence was. She had a lot of friendships with other literary figures, um, but she preferred to like maintain them by letter because she said, quote, very, very often one learns more about people that way. Yeah, like she she was she corresponded with a lot of other writers, but she didn't really run in yeah writerly circles, and so this this contributed to for a long time to this this perception that her works were kind of like middle brow and like and and a little boring and like fine, but but there's there like wasn't a lot under the surface and there wasn't a lot to discover, and I think this biography like. So so f- sort of famously, um, her husband approached uh, Elizabeth Jane Howard uh-huh. to write a biography about Elizabeth Taylor after she died in uh, 1975. And uh, Elizabeth Jane Howard refused, saying that among her many Austin traits, she led a life that contained very little incident. That's like... That's neither praise nor condemnation it's from a friend. It's pretty shade, though. Like, I imagine, like, if somebody <laughs> approached one of my friends after I died, I think that they would say that about my life. I would... Well, yeah, probably. Do you want me to write a book about you? Mm, I don't know. I would read a book that you wrote about me. We'll see. I, I would... Are you I, dead when I've written it, though? My ghost would read it. Okay. <laughs> And give you notes. Dear Andrew's ghost, you died as you lived. Making Making fun of you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But so then when this this other, this more recent biography. If I was a ghost and I was haunting you, I would. would, Oh, God. All of our interactions would be like, okay, got a ghost. Oh, I. I, (laughs) That made. Oh. (laughs) Oh, no. That's going on your tombstone. Uh, you would troll me on the computer all the time. Oh, you'd haunt my computer so bad. I would so bad. Type, I would be a, I, yeah, I would do a lot of stuff to your computer. Um, this, apparently, this 2009 biography, uh, Beaumont waited until 
Taylor's husband passed before she like finished a manuscript and right. the revelations of these letters the the affair with Ray Russell this is actually where we got a lot more confirmation about the communist party stuff um Taylor's two children were kind of upset by it and disassociated themselves from the book yeah the, so I, I the book did a lot for her literary reputation it i did. think but as it also revealed like often scandalous stuff about her personal life yeah mhm this is the incident that that the original Elizabeth Jane Howard did not know about, I guess. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, and this edition that I read was, I read a digital edition of the reprint from the New York Review of Books, which I think we did when we had Sophie on several months ago to do that Renata Adler book. It was a similar Speed like... Speedboat? Speedboat, yeah. Yes. Uh, it was a similar reprint that the NYRB has been doing. Um, and they're, the forward is by Hilary Mantle, who wrote uh, Wolf Hall, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Taylor seems like she slots into a mid-20th century British author mold that, like, not in a mold. Like, she's in a spot where a lot of people are like, more people should know about her. But the fact that she's kind of a buried treasure is what is intriguing to a lot of her fans. Mm-hmm. Um and because she's writing about writers more often than not, like, I don't think there's a lot of autobiography in this particular novel, but she is writing about some of her predecessors. Uh, and I imagine some of the commentary bleeds into her contemporaries. So, sure. Okay. Uh, we should probably take a quick break and then we can dive right into the book. Yeah, I'm winded. Shut up. Here we go. <laughs> Craig, Andrew, hi. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. We're How here. Are you? I'm good. We're here in the mid roll. It's weird in here. Here in the mid roll. I'm here to tell you about the Penn State World Campus. Please it's tell a, me more. <laughs> it's a site that allows you to earn your Penn State degree online from anywhere in the world. That sounds pretty good, right? Like anywhere in the world. Like I could. Where in the Where in the world would you want to earn your Penn State World Campus degree from? Where in the world would I want to earn my Penn State World Campus degree from? Um, like if you were a member of Rockapella and you were like, you know, the acapella game, I just gotta get out of it. I gotta go back to school. Ooh, degrees. Ooh 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 degrees. I would want to get one <laughs> from like. I want to hang out. In the Cake Boss's shop in Hoboken. Could I like okay, fire cool. up my laptop and go there? Yeah, it's a cool place. I've been there. They have tables you could fire up your laptop at. You can visit worldcampus.psu.edu and you can find more than 125 graduate and undergraduate degrees and certificate programs. Um, they are ranked number one for online bachelor's degrees by the U.S. News and World Report. And they are ranked in the top 10 online graduate programs in business, education, engineering, and technology by the U.S. News and World Report. It's a very busy news and world report. <laughs> Can I talk to them on the phone if I have like questions or if I sign up and I want to talk to like a counselor or a coach? Yeah, they have admissions counselors and coaches available to help you decide if the Penn State World Campus is the best fit for you. Uh, you can call them at 800-245-5518 or you can just go to that website. That's worldcampus.psu.edu. 
Um, this is a great fit for people who want to go back to school, but you're a busy working adult or you're just like you're trying to start out in a new field. It's a it's a good way to go back to school without having to actually go back to school, which I think that a lot of a lot of our listeners can probably appreciate. We don't I don't have time for that. I'm going to go go eat some cake and go get my degree. Yeah. Get some cake. Put on your 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 mortar board. And go to worldcampus.psu.edu to find out more. Uh, Andrew, this week's show is also brought to you in part by the fine folks at Squarespace. Wow, that's my favorite shape. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a website that helps you make websites. Ooh, meta. Meta stuff is really popular with the kids these days. Yeah, is meta like Inception? It's like Inception or like Community, maybe... Okay. Is cool. this a meta? <laughs> <laughs> so, if you wanted to devote a website to this conversation, uh, or if you had that? some some photos of the conversation, or like you wanted to blog about it, uh, you could go to Squarespace dot uh, com and start a website. It's easy. If you uh, sign up for a year, you'll get a free custom domain name. They've got all these templates that can like. If you don't know what your website should look like, they've got examples, which is kind of good. Yeah, start from there and just put your like a big old picture of your face on it. And it'll look pretty yes. good. Yes. Uh, and they've got 24-7 customer support that you can use if you have questions. We've used them before when I break our website. Uh, and they've also got some pretty good commerce tools. We're going to talk about that in just a second because we use Squarespace's commerce tools to sell our own merch and it's going pretty well. Yeah, we so we use Squarespace for our own website at overduepodcast.com and I think we also built our respective wedding websites. Correct. Both on Squarespace. So <laughs> if you don't want to muck around in HTML, you you want to build a website but you don't want to know a whole lot about building websites, Squarespace <laughs> is a pretty good way to get that done. <laughs> If this sounds interesting to you, you should start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code OVERDUE to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. Craig, wait, tell me more about those commerce tools. I wasn't done learning about them. Well, you don't need to learn about them because you're already using them. Oh, man, you're I'm going- living it. I'm living the commerce <laughs> you're- tools. You're using, uh, you're using those tools at overduepodcast.com slash store to sell mugs and totes and bookmarks and stickers uh, to our fine listeners. And they can, they can buy them at that URL that I just said. <laughs> you mean overduepodcast.com slash store? Correct. Uh, we've got a couple of different designs, a couple of different mugs, a couple of different bags, and... We are selling them now through January 31st. Yeah. So get your orders in before then. We'll like, there's a chance we'll reopen it in the future. We probably will use these designs again. We really like the logo design in particular, but we definitely want to like get this out while the going's good. Yeah. So like we're, we're so happy with how everything came out. The response has been good so far. We keep getting a, you know, steady, steady trickle of orders and we just keep shipping them out. It makes me really proud and, a little confused to see the stacks of boxes that we're shipping out every week. Like, I appreciate that people are spending real currency on these things. I don't understand it, but I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, and the we are going to be donating uh, half of the profits that we make after all of our expenses 
to an organization called First Book, which is a national nonprofit here in the United States. And I think they might do some international work. I don't know for certain. Um, uh, that puts books and other learning materials in the hands of kids who need them. Um, this being a book podcast, that seemed a fitting thing to do to give back. Yeah. Uh, so know that if you're buying stuff from us, it's not just going to us and to growing to the show. It's, you know, growing a generation of readers. A generation ideally. of readers and future listeners, but more importantly, readers. More importantly, future listeners. <laughs> Again, that's overduepodcast.com slash store. We'll talk we'll stop talking about it now, but you should definitely go there and then we'll we can really stop talking yeah, about it. Yeah, just okay. like pause the podcast, go buy your stuff and come back. We'll still be here. We'll be here for you. We'll be here. We'll be here for you. Rockapella. <laughs> That's the theme song from the TV show Angel. Oh. <laughs> Is that what that was? Yeah. Okay. Can we talk about the book Angel instead? If you want to talk about the novelization of the TV show Angel, then yeah, great. Sure. That's great. what I'm so here for. Set at the turn of the 20th century. I did so much preparation. I've noticed. I, I can see all of your notes tattooed on your face. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. Yeah, that's where I put my notes every week. That's it gets really, it's like 217 episodes in. It's a little cramped, but. Yeah, well, you've got that little compact mirror and magnifying glass. It works for you. So this book is set, as I just said, at the turn of the 20th century uh, in England in the brewery town of Norley. Uh, and our protagonist is Angelica Angel Deverell. Uh, she's 15 years old. She's not a vampire, Andrew. Okay. Yeah. Disappointing. Uh, <laughs> to say the uh, least. And we meet, <laughs> we meet her uh, as she's going to this school, and she doesn't really seem to like school. She doesn't really seem to like her other students. And the first scene that we get of her is of her teacher accusing her of plagiarism. Um. Like, her writing in this one essay is, like, way too florid. Uh, she's accused of cribbing from, like, Ruskin and Pater. Okay. Uh, and I I found this fascinating because I remember when I was in high school, there were some people who got caught cheating. But I think one of the ways that you could do is, like, you could just run that thing through, like, a teacher search engine. Search engine that You caught, could just, like, like, Google it. Just like yeah. put it like put words and phrases in and Google it if you thought it was a little too florid. Now, this is like the end of the 19th century. So this teacher like spent all night like reading other books to see. Or they had spent so much time reading books in the past that they could instantly identify this as being someone else's prose. So I like I think that. As a teacher, when you're reading through someone's paper, you probably realize when it doesn't sound like that person wrote it. Mm-hmm. Like, especially if you've already read a couple of uh, original works. Yes, but, that's yeah, true. I found like the the best solution for to to get around that sort of word for word plagiarism <laughs> accusation is to just steal ideas and concepts. <laughs> instead of stealing specific phrases. Great artists do steal. Yes, but they're like yes. subtle about it. Yeah, they're not <laughs> upfront about it. 
and this is this is an exchange that should tell you a lot about how Angelica feels about the work of other writers. Um, her teacher asks her, "Do you read a great deal, Angelica?" "No, I never read." "But why not?" "I don't think it's interesting." <laughs> "Such a pity. Then what do you do in your spare time?" "I play the harp mostly." And then, as Angelica's leaving school that day, she was as resentful as at not being believed about the harp, which was indeed untrue, as about the essay which she had certainly written herself, and with the greatest of ease and speed, just because she had suddenly been in a mind to do so. So right away, we're told that Angelica is a kid who lies. Mm. She makes up stuff about herself. But she's also now smart, this, right? But she is... Yeah, sort of. Like she can write an impressive, like an essay impressive enough that someone would think that she plagiarized it. Correct. And and but she, also she just tells like small, stupid, pointless lies. He, yes, she likes <laughs> to uh, like narrate a version of herself that is wholly untrue. She lives above like a corner store, like a grocery corner store that her mom works in, and they have this like crappy little apartment that they live in uh, the quote is the reality of the room exasperated her which is when she gets home so mm-hmm. she doesn't like her life really uh and the idea that she wrote this essay is just that like she's an autodidact it seems like if she, this is not like it's not the term the book uses but there's a lot of like if she's read a thi- if she's read words before she remembers them forever um so that like she doesn't read a lot, but she has a decent vocabulary because anything she has read is just lodged in her brain. Um, and she's not just like confined. You said that she has like little lies that she tells, which is true. Mm-hmm. But she also every day like walks home. She's 15. She walks home these two younger girls, Gwen and Polly, uh, and like drops them off at their house like you know keep them safe on the walk home i guess there's no buses or whatever and she tells them all about this place called paradise house which is like this gorgeous property that she's going to inherit she has a dog there she has horses like she gets to go there all the time and it's super rich and of course, Gwen and Polly are like, that sounds super cool. Like, Paradise House sounds great. Well, I mean, of course, it's, got, it's called Paradise House. Well, it is important to know that Paradise House is real. She does. Uh, it's just that Angelica has no claim to it. Her aunt works there as a maid. Is <laughs> so, it located in Paradise City where the grass is green and the girls are pretty? Remains to be seen. Okay. It is very possible that Axl Rose read this book and then decided to write. What if there was Paradise a whole city? city of Paradise Houses? <laughs> I'm not satisfied by one house, thought Axl Rose. Mm-hmm. So, of course, uh, what Angel does when she goes home is she always like tells herself stories in her mind about like her life if she lived at paradise house so her aunt is the maid to the lady of the house and there's another girl there named angelica whose name never gets shortened to angel because she's rich of course i think i think i think that also happens like that that dynamic just happens in a class where anybody 
like two people have the same names. Either you've got to do your name plus your your the initial of your last name, or yes, yes. one of you settles on a nickname and the other has the same name. Oh, why did you start going by Dave? Well, because there was a kid named David already, I yeah. guess. Yeah, sure. Or you're forever known as Andrew C. Ugh, the dreaded, like, you got to carry that initial around. Gross. Gross. Uh, so, of course, Angel gets in trouble because the next day, Polly and Gwen uh, don't show up for their morning walk. And word gets back through her, their mom that Angel's been telling all sorts of lies about Paradise House. And she gets in a huge fight with her mom. And she wakes up the next morning and she's, like, terribly ill with some sort of, like, rash or something. And she parlays this into, like, months off from school. <laughs> I don't know if you ever like Ferris Bueller'd when you were in school, Andrew. I did a little bit of Ferris Bueller'ing in middle school. When you say Ferris Bueller, do you just mean like faked your way into a like getting out of school, or was there a specific gambit that you ran that got you I, out of school? I was not like stealing a car and going to Cubs games or, or doing, anything. Like, twist and shout in the middle of <laughs> King of Prussia. <laughs> but there were. I, I the latter part of my middle school years I was not super enthused about a lot of things and I would occasionally just be like I just need to stay home like you know and I think my mom knew I think she was like okay Barb's pretty smart she's she's a pretty smart lady Barb's, like, Barb's a sharp lady and I think what was going on is like my grandmother lived with me or lived with us and then when she passed like I took it really hard and I was just like I don't I'm kind of kind of just like not for a little while uh but what would always happen is I would like not eat during the day so then like dinner time came and I would sort of really feel sick okay it's like kind of a terrible plan <laughs> but I don't think you your sounds like you did not Ferris Bueller that much no not really I would be I would have been too scared to get like of getting in trouble there exists the possibility that i acted sicker than i was ever to oh get sure out of school but it always I, started from a kernel of truth yeah and i never like whenever i did that i would always just like stay home while my parents were out and like play video games i would never that's, like go and run amok yeah that's what i would do i was never like sneaking out of the house yeah it was like how can i play more donkey kong country 2 diddy's <laughs> conquest yeah, I'm just going to sit here and drink ginger ale and play strategy games. Mm -hmm. That's fine. Mm -hmm. It's my day. Mm -hmm. Final Fantasy nope. Tactics time. Uh -huh. My tactic is to fake being sick. <laughs> <laughs> so Angel parlays this row with her mom into months off from school. She like Once the rashes disappear, she starts complaining about her heart. And like her dad died when she was really young. Um, as Taylor writes, he coughed his way through only a year and a half of married bliss. Just a really good line. Mm -hmm. uh, and she, for Christmas that year, when she's kind of like locked in her room, she doesn't have anything to read, which is fine because she never cared much for books because they're not about her. Um, <laughs> that's that's a direct quote. <laughs> Uh, she asks her mom for like books, like blank books to write in, and she starts writing like nonstop. And she refuses to go back to school. At this point, she has decided that she is going to like. 
She's writing these romantic-style novels that if they were about pre-existing fiction, they would be like self-insertion fanfic. Like, she is writing stories about main characters that are misunderstood women who triumph over being misunderstood. Mm -hmm. Just how she fancies herself. Now, of course, she doesn't read a lot. And she's woefully underexposed to the world around her. So she doesn't really know what she's writing about. Like, she's writing about people who live at Paradise House. uh, And she doesn't really understand people of that class. She's never actually been there. Of course, she tries to pull an S.E. hint in Andrew. She, She takes her manuscript and she wants to get it published. And she's still a teenager at this time. Mm hmm. If you were a teen and you wanted to get your manuscript published, what would you do? I would probably pretend that I wasn't a teen. Mm, that's smart. She doesn't do that. What does she, she has too do? much pride for that. Okay. She finds the address for the Oxford University Press, which is in the only book that she has access to, like inside the cover, mm-hmm. and she mails her manuscript there. And, of course, they write back and they don't want it. Of course. So... She goes to a bookstore and sells all of her textbooks to get enough postage to send it to another book publisher. And it's like these two guys, it's Theo Gilbrate and I think it's Willie Brace. They run a small publishing shop out of London. And they're like, this is garbage, but Mick could probably make some money. <laughs> like, Welcome uh- to internet publishing. <laughs> Like, someone wrote it so we can run ads against it. Maybe uh, it's not good, but that's, like, maybe a tertiary concern. I think uh, Hillary Mantel, in the introduction to this edition of the book, says, uh, Angel illustrates the axiom that nobody ever went broke underestimating public taste. Yeah. So... There's yeah. like a there's like a whole thing where she goes to meet them and they think that she's going to be like an old lady who just published this kind of raunchy melodramatic book and she's a teenager and they don't know what to do with it and they ask her to like maybe change some stuff and she refuses uh in particular the big like scandalous scene is there's a card game where the main character Arania or Arania I'm not sure is like her her having sex with a dude is the prize of the card game, which everyone's scandalized by, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they publish it anyway, and the critics think it's terrible, but everybody buys it, and she makes a bunch of money. Stupid lamestream media. Yes. So this sets this is like kind of the end of the first part of the book and it takes from there it kind of does some i don't know it it goes on a citizen kane journey let me use that shorthand for you okay um in that we gotta we jump ahead a couple spots in this book and every jump is like a major you know couple of years of development and this into the second part of the book she has succeeded as an author even though everyone thinks her books are terrible. Um, and it's it's kind of because uh, critics are laughing at it, which makes people want to read it. 
And simple people find it captivating, and sophisticated people find it preposterous and thus want to watch it. I guess the way that you and I would like lifestyle, like Lifetime movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's like the Nicholas Sparks of her day. Yeah, <laughs> but probably worse. <laughs> um, and so we skip ahead into part two, and she's like published two or three books already she's moved into the suburbs with her mom she's grown up it's like a couple years later Uh, her poor mom like doesn't know what to do with her she's basically been completely uh subjugated by her daughter Mm -hmm. who just tears into her all the time uh and her one aunt who used to work for the lady at paradise house like tries to set her straight and gets completely told off and is then like written out of their life uh and then from there we kind of set off on it's not it's less about angel and her quest to write more books and whether or not they are well received but it's the like lifetime and fallout of someone who made a bunch of money for something that really doesn't stand the test of time and doesn't really know what to do with any of it okay so this the local lord lord norley like visits good lord name it's a pretty good name uh he visits to like talk with her as if he's gonna like pay his cultural debt like which is kind of garbage because everyone no one like thinks that she's creating good art or anything um and he brings his niece and nephew nora and esme uh and nora is like a aspiring poet who's in love with Angel's writing and Esme is this painter who everyone says is really bad at painting like even his family members (laughs) and he like paints uh like bars and low class people which is kind of scandalous to the middle class and he does it in these like drab color schemes that no one likes but he seems immune to criticism it's actually what uh, I think draws Angel to him. She kind of falls in love with him on the spot and not in a way that she's able to articulate, but she's really enraptured by him because he's this like cad who's like, yeah, I mean, my paintings are terrible, but whatever. I'm going to go have sex with a bunch of women. I don't know. Like he's just not, not a serious person in the way that she is. Yeah. Um, And you're never, I don't think you're ever meant to, like like him for that it's tough because angel's pretty like classically not likable you know like she's brash she's she kind of offends every other character that she talks to is it like you know, th- in a way where society finds her unlikable but you and the, you the reader find her likable or i think you what? find her both i think you find her both ways because she's really terrible to some people I, I, in particular, the way that she treats her mother is is really nasty. Mm-hmm. Um, but this sense of like, I wish the world were. She's completely identifiable. Like you can, I, I think it's easy to see parts of yourself in her. In the sense of like, I wish the world were this way. I'm gonna tell myself the world is this way so that I feel better about living here. Like, the amount of self-deception that she lives with and then kind of propagates to everyone around her is very understandable. Okay. So, I, it, I it's at a certain point where I think likability is 
not a thing that the book needs to have or have not. If that makes it like, I don't want to judge the book for whether or not she is likable. Cause I think that's unfair to the writing. Um, but she, she is not uh, warm and cuddly or, or inspiring in that way. Which is fine. That's what I'm saying, which is fine. Um, and so she is like enraptured with this guy, Esme, and he like, I think kind of just to humor her, like offhandedly is like, and, you know, when will you come and see my paintings? And she asks this really earnest question. She goes like, when shall I come? And he never answers her. And that question hangs for years. It's like when you, you've done this, right? It's like you've asked something or you've offered something and you didn't expect whoever you were asking or offering to actually take you up on it. And then they do. And you have no response to that. Uh, correct. <laughs> and, uh, usually I don't ghost for like five years like Esme does. but Or like I me know if I was a dead ghost. If you were a dead ghost, yes. Uh, like yeah, it's that kind of thing where you... You don't, you don't take the the time. You've like in this case, you've just met the person, and you're kind of like throwing your personal brand around in everybody's face, uh, and you don't take the time to consider like how this person might be receiving what you're saying. You're just kind of trying to be flip and whatever, or or be funny or be kind or you know polite, and then that person like latches onto it like a lifeboat. <laughs> Uh, and you're unprepared to deal with that. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't see him for years. She's living in this house. Her mom is getting old and sick. And she is like not really writing. She's having some writer's block. She doesn't really know what to do about it. She thinks she's going to set a novel in ancient Greece. And her her publisher's like, you don't know anything about ancient Greece. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, well, I'll publish it under a pseudonym. It'll be fine. Um, none of my readers who love my work will care, and then they'll love it more for knowing that it was me all along. It's a terrible, terrible plan. Um, so she eventually gets Esme to come back into her life in this really kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like roundabout way, mm-hmm. where she's giving a newspaper interview, and the, she's like lying about her like parentage and like trying to make herself feel seem more important to this newspaper writer. And the writer asks her who her favorite authors are. He suggests uh, Mary Corelli, who I want to come back to in just a second, who was a real author at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, And she replies, no, her favorite is this poet, Nora, who is Esme's sister that we met earlier. And that like, Later, a couple months down the road after Angel's mom dies, like Nora shows up having read that article. And it's like, you do like my work. And I'm sorry your mom died. I'll live with you for 30 years and be your housekeeper and best friend. <laughs> uh, so I bring up Mary, this Mary Corelli bit because when they adapted this book into a movie, it was written about, uh, I think it was like a 2007 film or something like that. The... They were right to point out that the film, I think even more specifically than the book, makes it kind of a fictionalized account of this author's life, Mary Corelli, Mm -hmm. who was, she lived 1855 to 1924. Apparently, she sold more copies than Arthur Conan Doyle, H.G. Wells, and Rudyard Kipling combined. Like, 
The Queen loved her stuff. She was very popular, but one critic called her a woman of deplorable talent who imagined that she was a genius and was accepted as a genius by a public to whose commonplace sentimentalities and prejudices she gave a glamorous setting. Uh, it's just it sounds like a lot of this book, and and I don't know how much more like plot stuff you yeah, not you really want to go to, but it it sounds like a lot of this book is concerned with the difference between like popular f- fame, like acceptance among the public, and like critical reception. Uh, it seems like that that's it's being set up a lot as like oh here's what here's what the unwashed masses will read or buy or whatever even if even if critics don't like it or even if it's not factually correct or whatever yeah what's uh, that last point the about the bit about it being factually correct i think is actually the strongest theme in the book is what allows it to be popular even though critics are like this is garbage is that people are sort of okay with what is a lie or not even what's a lie, just like what's not well-founded because it's it's they find it aspirational. So if like if you're low class and you're reading about this uh, middle to middle upper class person kind of moving up, even if the book's kind of garbage, if it if you see yourself in it, then it's you're gonna buy it and you're gonna like it and you're gonna pass it on to someone else that you that you think feels similarly. Mm-hmm. Um, when she's getting into this like theme of people lying and and deceiving, like that's all Esme does is he runs around and like totally bails on people he owes money to and sleeps with women and then never talks to them again. He has to get tracked down and almost like forced into a relationship with Angel, which then becomes a terrible marriage that neither of them enjoy. Um, And he's always, he's aware that she lies about everything. She's kind of aware that he's a cad and they just kind of live with it. Um, (laughs) One of the like quote unquote good people in the book, her publisher, Theo Gilbright, he comes up with a fake like head of his publishing company so that when he has to give her critiques, he can funnel them through a fake guy so that she will still be like, so she won't get too defensive to him. Huh. Like imagine if when you were like turning in articles or no, at this point you could come up with a fake person. I it's could. like, I thought it was, I thought it was great, but Jerry, Jerry, more Jerry, important than you know me, that uh, Jerry, he just doesn't get you. He's always, he just, you know, I don't, I don't like him any more than you do. But he pays the bills. But he so. pays the bills. He signs your checks. You ever looked at your check? It just says Jerry on the. <laughs> he doesn't even write it in cursive. He just writes it in in just regular print. And one of the <laughs> R's is backwards. It's weird. Like, listen, we all know Jerry's an idiot. But he's the boss's son, and we just have to. So, like, I really appreciate you just like trying your best. But like really like pay attention to Jerry's criticisms because even though I don't agree with them, that's what that's what the boss wants. But but I'm here for you for so you, you can vent. Yeah, right. Like listen me. listen to Jerry, but like Jerry's an idiot, but definitely listen to him. Please listen to him or we're all fired mm-hmm. is the story there. Mm-hmm. So I'm Jerry. You're I've I've that's what I've learned. Um <laughs> So everyone top to bottom in this book 
tells lies big and, and small. The tops and the bottoms. The tops and the bottoms <laughs> in this. It's not a very sexy book. Um, they actually, yeah. Uh, they're all telling lies big and small to each other, to themselves. And that, I, again, I think that's where this idea that, like, yes, she was... She was never even writing for a public, even though she liked their adulation. She was writing for herself. Um, and she was, like, telling these fables to herself to make herself feel better about a world that she didn't feel comfortable in. Um, it's like, in one way, that's the point of fiction. And then in other ways, it's it's one of the pitfalls of fiction, I guess. Um Later in the book, at this point, like I'll just say plot-wise, we should get into some larger discussion, and I, I think this is an interesting point. Um, her husband, you know, Esme becomes her husband. He goes off to, to war, World War One, and she starts trying to write. She writes a book that is, like, really anti-war, and people hate it because they come to her for escapism and romanticism and she's like crammed this political belief into her quote unquote art and no one wants it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is like this really to this point where she was writing these fictionalized things that spoke to everyone's aspirations. Then she actually took a stance and no one wanted to hear it. I mean that, mm. that we, you see that phenomenon all the time. Like every, every time some Twitter egg tweets at a celebrity like oh why don't you just be funny i didn't come here to learn about politics like sure sure it's it's that same thing where where you have this weird misconception that that thing that anything anywhere isn't political somehow that's true (laughs) and -hmm. you get and you get mad at people when they make that subtext into text well and it's it's interesting too because i think you you see stuff like Teen Vogue, like their model is like we can write about whatever we want, yeah. and it can be as like it can be soft journalism, it can be hard journalism, it can be like celebrity gossip. Like you want to read it, we're gonna write it, and it's gonna be high quality of whatever it well, is. There's this that it there was um that that interview with Tucker Carlson or whatever <gasps> the Teen Vogue writer did, and it's. There's Lauren this Duca, weird. Yeah. There's this weird. Yeah, Lauren Duca. There, there's this weird misconception that somebody who writes about, quote unquote, surface level or like soft stuff cannot then also write about hard stuff as the as though every human being does not contain multitudes. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and that, ugh, it's, it's it's yeah, it's, it's a hard. weird inverse of the like. I don't need an expert to tell me. It's oddly the inverse, and yet there's a continuity there, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't need an expert to tell me about science, but also I can have an opinion about science, but you can't if you're going to write about sports. Yeah, like, you may have dedicated your life to learning about science, but I read an article in Slate, so... <laughs> so, like, my opinion is important, too. What's tricky about Angel, not David Boreanaz, the character here in this book, I know, uh, is that she, her motivation for writing about anti-war stuff is literally just because it took her husband away from her. And not because she's like, even, she can't even really, 
imagine what he's going through. She's not really interested in that. She just doesn't like that he's gone because it's it was so revelatory to have him there in the first place. So the war and then later the Second World War, she views them as inconveniences because they don't affect her directly. Mm-hmm. And so her pacifism is this kind of uninformed thing which undercuts even what we were just saying about her being able to to put it in her art if she wants to wow Um, weird weird it is weird weird how people who aren't directly affected by a thing can downplay its importance (laughs) (laughs) i've never heard of that concept uh so then the the latter quarter of the book uh, is the decline of her life. She ends up actually, Andrew, acquiring Paradise House. Uh, and she pours all of her money into renovating it as best she can, and she does not do a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has this kind of sad, waning life where she winds up with, you know, her husband dies, and she's living in this house with, like, her uh, her chauffeur and Nora, who's there the whole time, and their one maid, and she's you know in- increasingly less famous every day. Decreasingly and... famous. De- sure. Decre- increasingly more unfamous. <laughs> uh, and she's like running out of money because she doesn't really write anymore. Um, and like there's a whole bunch of like ups and downs with her and her husband that. It's like, it's bad. It's a bad marriage. Um, and she meets this like young guy who's writing an article about her late husband. And she's walking him around the grounds. And she's kind of just like, it's not quite lying, but she's definitely making the world better than it is like right in front of him like there's a beat where she wants him to have some peaches from their grounds and the garden hasn't been kept up in years so he like pulls a peach off a tree and a wasp stings him and she's like well yeah but like we'll just put some some balm on that you could still probably eat that peach Mm -hmm. like it's fine and she is to the end, to the very end of the book when she finally passes, like, she is lying to herself about the world that she's in by superimposing the past when she was rich, like, on top of it. Um, and it's this, it is, it was reminding me of things like Citizen Kane and, and this idea that, like, well, you got all this stuff, but what was it for and you weren't really emotionally equipped to make good use of it in the first yeah, place. Yeah, or even like you, you can learn to relate to the world in one way and you continue to try to relate to it in that way even when your circumstances change. Yeah, she, she's this tragic figure in that way where she's, to the end, I still could see the 15-year-old girl who had no friends in school, ate lunch by herself, told lies to make herself feel better and chose to spend, you know, eight months in her bedroom before dropping out of school to write novels through the rest of the book where she is like unable to relate to people. She has sort of a good relationship with Nora and like her chauffeur comes to at least be like affectionate to her and take care of her, Mm -hmm. but she's not, she's not like 
everything that she values in terms of material possessions and people thinking her work is important are gone. Um, but even in her like last moments, she kind of convinces herself that they're not. So it's this like it it's a at times it's very tragic. At times the characters are so tragic they're funny. <laughs> Uh, kind of as we were saying, like just some of the things that she says to. That's the balance I try to strike. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um. Yeah, and it, it's just is a pretty it's a pretty good book. What what I was kind of struck by is that the plot it's just like a person's life. There's not a the the quest to get her book published is the like, and then the quest to get this guy. Esme are, are the two biggest like active thrusts, but they kind of just happen through a bunch of my, like tiny decisions. Like that goes back to what you were saying about Taylor's larger body of work, where like people do things to like relieve these middle and upper middle class like fears and anxieties. But the action is really just a way for Taylor to like explore why people do that stuff in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's. I don't know. What do you have any other questions, kind of based on what I've what I've talked about so far? I don't really think I do, which I know is a bad answer. Oh, I do have a question for you though. Okay, hit me. Is there a building or a place from your childhood? That's like your Citizen Kane uh, or uh, It's a Wonderful Life like building like you would want to own. Did you have one of those? I need your like do you have an example because then I can figure out what my example might be. I think there so I don't know if I ever had been inside but across the street from me growing up there's this huge field and there was this like kind of big house like all the way up at the top and i think once we saw the guy come out but i don't really know much about him but like having all that land and like living in that home seemed kind of cool but then they tore up that field and put a bunch of townhomes in it so like that dream was dead Mm -hmm. but i was struck by the passages where she comes into this like dilapidated estate that's been left to nature and you know rabid animals and she buys it and tries to fix it up pours all of her money into it and it ends up like rotting around her um which is way sadder than something like it's a wonderful life uh but that's a that's a trope that i was not expecting to find in this book and i was wondering if you had a or if there's a, just a cool house in your town. I don't think there's... I really don't think there is. The only building that comes to mind at all is the the second job I ever had was uh, at the Office Max that was uh-huh. near the Southland Mall. We talked about the Southland Mall a couple weeks ago. Yes. It was a mall that people thought might be run by the mob. My first job was at the McDonald's in front of it. And then my second job was at the Office Max off to the side of it. And I got the second job because the manager for Office Max rolled through the McDonald's drive through. And I was like, hey, <laughs> are you guys, are you guys like hiring or whatever? And then uh, I went and interviewed and I did okay. Okay. At Chutzpah. I think but you do. 
that that office max closed many many years ago and since that side of town is dying like there's still that building just like sitting there oh those are good buildings with like you can still see the traces of the word office max over the top of it from where like Mm -hmm. the weather hit the sign and yeah there were there was a so it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a good investment no, there was an empty furniture store in my town for a couple years that later became a Raymore and Flanagan. But before it became Raymore and Flanagan, people were joke were talking about it being a concert venue. Mm-hmm. Like, you're in high school, your band could play there. <laughs> your the, band could play at a Raymore and Flanagan at the, at the furniture store. <laughs> you just walk in there with amps and start playing. Like, what are they gonna do? If you play it, they will come. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's this is this is Angel. It's a good it's a good book. I feel like uh, this author writing to be... Elizabeth Taylor. No, oh, I was going to say, well, Angel, the author, like, writing for fame and acclaim and people um, respecting her. There's lots of moments where people, like, later in her life look at her and don't know who she is, and that kind of breaks her heart. I mean, did you did um, you get a strong sense? Here's a question. I finally okay, thought great. of one. Do you, have, do you have a strong sense that this was autobiographical in any way? Like when when was this book written? Like what this, year? Like where in her professional arc was it written? This was written in fifty seven. So midway. So midway. Like so she was established, I, but she wasn't like nearing the end of her run or anything. No, and I think the comparisons between Angel and, as I was saying earlier, Mary Corelli are are a lot more apparent. Um, even down to stuff like her dropping out of school at age fifteen to write a for and then like going on to write a first novel to like some eccentric rich old lady stuff like living in Stratford upon Avon and like hiring a gondolier yeah, from Venice like to we've boat talked her about around. Everybody in Stratford upon Avon is just a Shakespeare <laughs> scholar. Uh there's like and like even little stuff where uh her Mary Corelli's like painter boyfriend like hat like didn't really like her even though they were together for a long time and he was a cad and was stepping out on his wife for her um so there's lots of there's lots of parallels big and small between this previous author and angel so i think i don't think taylor is specifically writing about herself in this book as much as she's looking to a previous author who was very successful, but kind of held to be a bit of a philistine and naive and not part of a literary elite mm-hmm. and worrying, maybe worrying if her work would be similarly received. And I, as you said earlier, I think the initial assumption was that her work was maybe not as good as it's now being taken credit for or not being given, given credit, credit for. for. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can take credit all I want. <laughs> I take credit all the time, constantly. All the time. Yeah, yeah. So that's Angel. I'm glad that I read this book. I would never have read this book if not for a recommendation. It just would not have been on my radar. So if you want to sing more of the Angel theme, I'm gonna list off the folks who reached out to us on social media this week. They did so through 
Twitter and Facebook at Overdue Pod. I want to give a thanks to Melissa, Michael, Emma, Dorothy, Florencia, Caitlin, Ellen, Hannah, Cheyenne, Corey, Nada, Jennifer, Tara, Joe, Kate, Lucas, Sarah, Jess, R.A., Maddie, Katie, Sophie, Taylor, Yerba Swaina, Starfish Chick, Mick, Liz, Doc, Boven, and Tessa. Uh, thanks, y'all, for hitting us up on social media. And we got a couple good letters, well, emails, really, to Overdue Pod. like electronic letters to overduepod at gmail.com. I tried to write back to a bunch this week. I'm going to keep churning those out as best I can. I had some time over the holiday break to do so. I hope I can make some more time in the future. Andrew, if folks want to know more about our show, where should they go and they what should they do? can go to overduepodcast.com. They, just, they can just click everywhere. Click on everything. <laughs> um, we've got links to the books that we have read and are going to read. We posted our January schedule up there now. Um, you can click on links to Spreaker, our podcast host, HeadGum, our podcast network. You can subscribe using iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, RRSS. If you subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us. We just recently reached 400 reviews, which, Whee! you know, that means, you know, that means what 500's next. Here yeah. it comes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that that just it helps people find the show and it also gives us a big old self-esteem boost on the weeks where we really need it um and if you well man i lost the thread what am i we talked about subscribing we talked about speaker headgum um what else did you you talked about the amazon links oh yeah yeah amazon links to the books we have read are going to read and also we have a link to our merch store that's overduepodcast.com slash store like we said earlier it's going to run until the end of january we've got two different mug designs two different tote bag designs a sticker pack and a bookmark pack if you want to order those we are shipping primarily to the u.s and canada but if you are in another country we're super happy to work something out with you we worked something out with a listener in new zealand already so just uh Email us at overduepod at gmail.com and hopefully we can we can work something out if you're willing to pay for shipping because that's always the rub in it. Uh, next week, I will be reading Mr. Burns, a post-electric play by Ann Washburn. I'm excited for this. I'm excited. As our this, resident this Simpsons expert, this whole month is pretty great. The week after that, we will both be reading the Constitution of the United States. It, it's on January 16th, which is a few yep. days before... The orderly transfer of power happens. Yes, correct. And uh, yeah, it's it. I yeah, but I'm I'm interested to read Mr. Burns and to apply my. Some would say. Too much Simpsons knowledge. <laughs> to the subject. Yeah, from what I understand, it's it's a pretty interesting play. So I'm excited to to kind of meet you halfway on this one, having mm-hmm. neither seen nor read it. You myself, can even so. meet me like a quarter of the way, and I'll be I'll still be able to get us there. Zoinks! Is Zoinks. that Simpsons? No, that's Scooby Doo. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. <laughs> I hope you're having a good 2017 so far. And until next week, try to be happy. <laughs>